0: cardiology, neuroscience, and artificial intelligence, the icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai. We find a way. This week's episode is brought to you in part by the NOmis and Science Young Explorer Award. Are you doing excellent research that deserves recognition? The NOmis and Science Young Explorer Award recognizes bold young researchers who ask fundamental questions at the intersection of the life and social sciences, Researchers who take risks to address relevant and exciting questions with creative approaches, regardless of the research outcome. Submissions are due May 15th. Visit science.org nomis, that's N-O-M-I-S, to apply today. Welcome to the Science Podcast for August 17th, 2018. I'm Sarah Crespi. In this week's show, contributing correspondent Lizzie Wade talks about how a careful year by year radiocarbon dating project that spans two centuries may help settle the date for one of the largest volcanic eruptions in human history. And Tony Belpame is here to talk about his science robotics paper on measuring peer pressure from robots. It turns out kids are a lot more susceptible than adults to robotic influences. And this could have implications for how social robots are used. First up this week, we have contributing correspondent Lizzie Wade. Hi, Lizzie. Hi, Sarah. And her story, the story you've brought us, it's about Santorini, which you might have heard of as a super hot vacation spot these days. But a few thousand years ago, it was really hot, like erupting volcano hot. And you can still see evidence of this today, right, Lizzie? What does Santorini
1: look like? Yeah, so it's sort of like like a crescent shape. It's sort of almost a complete circle, actually. And that's the caldera of the old volcano that exploded hugely, you know, sometime in the ancient past, exactly when is sort of the point of the story. That's a lot of debate around it. How big was this eruption? This eruption was I think it's sixty times as big as Mount St. Helens estimated from the amount of ash and pumice that came out of it. That puts it at the second or third largest eruption that happened within human history or at least within human records. And you can see Santorini, which is also called Thera, is like right in the middle of the Mediterranean. And it was very close to Crete, which at the time was sort of the heart of the Minoan civilization. Ancient Egypt was going on, tons of stuff was happening in Mesopotamia. So this is like a really important region at this time period. And you can see this sort of layer of ash and debris from the eruption in all of these sites all over the Eastern Mediterranean. So if you know, When that eruption happened, it gives you like this great time marker for tying all these cultures together and, you know, exactly when they were interacting, how this volcano may have affected them or not. But like to know that, you really need to know like an exact date or as close as you can.
0: And this is the point of contention here. The date is not set. And there's archaeological evidence on one side and radiocarbon
1: dating on the other side. What are the two competing times Sure. So archaeological evidence, which is mostly sort of it's like based on seeing how ceramics changed over time and then how these ceramics were traded between all of these cultures in the region and kind of putting those timelines together with Egyptian inscriptions about the reigns of various kings that has since kind of the early 20th century has placed this eruption around 1500 BCE. That's shifted a little bit. Maybe it is a little bit earlier, around 1525, maybe getting into like 1550. This is the late to mid. 16th century BCE. The radiocarbon dates, which come from seeds and an olive tree and other kind of organic matter that was buried by the eruption at a site on Thera or Santrini, that has consistently placed this eruption about 100 years earlier in the late 17th century BCE. So what does it mean if it's an
0: earlier date or a later date? What does a century mean in terms of the consequence of our understanding of this period of time?
1: You know, a century... When you're talking about thousands of years ago, doesn't seem that long ago. But in terms of the scale of people's lives, it's quite a long time. It's a it's a two or three generations, especially if you're talking about the past where generations were shorter. If you really want to see the effect that this volcano had on these civilizations, you really need to get it down to at least within a decade or two of uncertainty. Like a hundred years is just too long for archaeology to like be able to say anything meaningful because culture changes a lot faster than that. And people's lives begin and end within that time frame.
0: Yeah, it's the difference between 1700 and 1800, right? Exactly. <laughs>
1: it's a big difference.
0: <laughs> so what's new in this debate? There's a paper that you looked into and it it has some new data that is trying to settle the debate.
1: Yes. So it's, it gets a little technical. So please Stick with me. It's about radiocarbon dating and exactly how it works. So, with radiocarbon dating, any living thing has this isotope in it called carbon 14, and carbon 14 decays at a known rate when you die. Like right now, my carbon 14, I have the same amount of carbon 14 as the atmosphere has. And then, if I die tomorrow, my carbon 14 will start to decay at a really known rate. So, if you look at me in you know, a thousand years, if you look at my skeleton, you can sort of work backwards from the amount of carbon-14 that's left over to like the amount of carbon-14 you must have originally had. And that helps you put a radiocarbon date on my skeleton or on seeds or whatever you're looking at. Just counting backwards on a fixed timeline based on the half-life of carbon-14, that assumes that radiocarbon is staying constant, and that's not the case. So the tricky part is that the amount of radiocarbon in the atmosphere is not always the same because the amount of cosmic radiation hitting Earth is not always the same. So you need to basically correct radiocarbon dates if you want to turn them into calendar years, which is what is meaningful to us as readers and humans, right? (laughs) And so (laughs) how they do that is they use tree rings, which is an exact count of calendar years. You know, many species of trees, although not all of them, grow one ring per year. So you count the rings, count backwards one year at a time. And if you sample the radiocarbon that is in a specific ring of that tree, you know exactly how much radiocarbon was in the atmosphere that exact calendar year. And that basically helps you correct. How many years did they look at? You know, how many rings did they look at? So using this, you can go back about 10,000 years, I think. And you can go back further using other techniques that aren't tree rings. But for this study, they looked specifically at 1700 BCE to 1500 BCE. How many time points did they sample? They sampled every year. I mean, it was an wow. enormous amount wow. of effort. So yeah, so there's this this curve, this calibration curve that's out there that every researcher uses in the world if you want to do radiocarbon dating. But that curve is done with 10-year chunks of wood because basically the technology has not been good enough. You've needed more wood than just like what you can get out of one tree ring. So they've kind of averaged the radiocarbon over decades. But now technology has improved a lot and you can use like a tiny speck of wood to measure the radiocarbon in a tree ring. So they did it every single year, which is like (laughs) insane to me. Like it took forever. It must have taken forever. And basically the shape of the curve is like pretty much the same as the, you know, the international calibration curve that everybody uses now, which is not surprising. Yeah. But there was slight differences that become really significant when you're talking about the date of this particular volcanic eruption that everybody's interested in. Did having this fine
0: set of year calendar dates, did that actually help place when Thera, when Santorini erupted?
1: Sort of. It kind <laughs> of made it more confusing, but in a productive way, if that makes sense. So yeah. previous, with like with the international standard radio calibration curve, when you plot these radiocarbon dates onto it, you get a very thin range of dates within the late 17th century BCE, which is 100 years before archaeologists expect it. But if you plot them with this new calibration data set, you get a lot more possible years. Those years around 1600 BCE are still possible, but so are years around 1500 BCE. And that would line up much better with the archeological data. It presents the opportunity for all the lines of evidence to overlap, which is something that has seemed impossible up until now.
0: Wow, that's great. You did mention in passing that there was an olive tree buried in this ash, and that was used to try to figure out a radiocarbon date for this event. But there's a problem with using olive trees, right?
1: Basically, olive trees grow irregularly. They are not a tree that grows one ring a year. So, there was just another paper, sort of really closely examining how olive trees grow and add on rings. And they found that even if you examine like the last, last ring that's right under the bark, that still might be 30 to 40 years before it's alive now. So, you know, if you sampled that ring, it might give you an artificially older radiocarbon date, right? And so that could be a problem. But the ironic thing about this other paper about the radiocarbon curve is that, like, you know, there's been 10 years of people trying to criticize these earlier radiocarbon dates for the eruption. But like if this new paper is right, all those radiocarbon dates are fine. And it's actually like the international gold standard calibration curve that might be the (laughs) issue. Like nobody really expected that.
0: That is really interesting. So we don't have a firm date here, but we have Space for everybody to be right, basically. Yes,
1: basically. <laughs>
0: so, what does it mean if this, if this time that the archaeological record has set up is correct?
1: It's kind of a small answer within archaeology. Like people who study the Eastern Mediterranean at this time period really care and seeing how they interacted with each other, you know, and how this volcano might have affected them really specifically is important and interesting. The bigger takeaway from this story is that the international radiocarbon calibration curve might be in need of revision. You know, now that you can do annual calibration, that might change this international resource that everybody uses, like not just people who study this eruption.
0: So is someone taking that on? Is someone doing
1: 10,000
0: annual radiocarbon dates on some set of traces?
1: (laughs) I don't I don't think it's a huge uh, undertaking yet. This is not the first annual calibration study that's been done. So, you know, this is happening in pieces and sort of the consortium or the working group that establishes the international curve, they're extremely aware of this issue. They're constantly looking to revise their curve. If it's confirmed by another laboratory, which is important, this will probably make it into the next version of the international curve, which is due to come out, I think, next year.
0: Okay, Lizzie, thank you so much for talking with me. Thank you Sarah. Lizzie Wade is a contributing correspondent for Science, based in Mexico City. You can find a link to her story and the related research at sciencemag.org/podcast. Now we have Tony Belplaine. He's here to talk to us about his paper in this week's Science Robotics on peer pressure from robots. Hi Tony. Hi there. You found that people, kids specifically, were more susceptible to peer pressure from robots. I'd like to start with why you were asking this question. What were you trying to find out?
2: We work in social robotics, and these are the kinds of robots that they they don't do anything useful really in terms of making you a cup of tea or cleaning the floor. They work in a social environment. And one of the things that we need to kind of assess there is how effective these robots are at encouraging you to do something, convincing you to not do something, uh, teaching you. And we wanted to know how much people would consider these robots as being kind of social agents, social entities. And we wanted to know how much people would follow suggestions made by robots.
0: Can you describe the classic experiment that you you used here to to study this?
2: Sure. So there's a a group of people, they're in a room together and they're asked to do a visual task. So they look at a screen and on that screen, there's four lines, one line on the left, three lines on the right. And you're asked... Which line on the right matches in length the one on the left? So it's a very easy task. Now, the sting really is that of all people in the room, everyone is part of the experiment except the participant. And once in a while, the group of people will give a wrong answer. And now we want to see if you are going to follow that wrong answer which is obviously wrong because it's an easy test. Yeah, you can clearly see that the answer is wrong. Or are you going to stick to your guns and give the correct answer? And that's kind of the, the, where we measure how much you comply to peer pressure.
0: Are you measuring something about the participant then? Or are you measuring sometimes things about the, the peers?
2: So what we do is it really is measuring how much you comply to peer pressure. And this experiment is old. Lots of people have done this experiment over and over again in different setups, you know, using more people in the group, less people you, um, in different societies, so kind of societies where individualism is more praised uh, than in other societies. The baseline is still the same. The basic result is that people comply to peer pressure. And we wanted to see if robots could, they could exert the same kind of peer pressure. So we replaced. The adult experimenters with smaller robots and ran the exact same experiment.
0: What did you find when you ran it with adults as the participants?
2: Well, with adults, uh, the adults don't cave into peer pressure. By the robots. <laughs> <laughs> so they uh, they look at the robots, and you see this you know, brief look of puzzlement on their faces, and <laughs> then they just give the correct answer. But then we we wanted to know, you know, what would happen for with, with children. So we took the whole setup into a primary school in Britain, and saw something completely different.
0: How old were the kids that you were using?
2: They were between seven and nine.
0: What was their reaction when the robots were attempting to peer pressure them into the wrong answer?
2: There's there's a brief moment of indeed kind of looking again at screen like, is is that correct (laughs) what I'm seeing? There's just a little check looking at the robots and not always, but enough to confirm that they kind of succumb to peer pressure. They follow the wrong answer given by the robots.
0: (laughs) Well, when this experiment is done with kids and adults or you know a group of kids do you see a difference in how susceptible they are to peer pressure has there been an age difference demonstrated before
2: uh, no it's a very very difficult experiment to do with children because uh, so if you do it with uh, adults you all the others in the room are accomplices so you can instruct them to act oh, as as if they're part of the experiment with children it it's not impossible to actually you know they 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 will give yeah, give away the game. So the only way to do it with children is to use optical illusions, and there's only been one experiment that did that. Uh, but I would I, I would expect that children of different ages uh, would respond differently to this.
0: Did you expect kids to be more susceptible to peer pressure based on? Um... Yes, really. Yeah.
2: um Children, they don't consider robots as just being uh, electronics and plastic. Yeah. They see the robot as really having a social character. The robot has a social presence for children. And we've seen that time and time again in in other applications where we bring in robots in hospitals or where we use robots. There's something different about the interaction that children have with robots uh, than when compared with adults. And so, yes, we, we were expecting a different result.
0: Do you think that this is a generational thing? that kids of today have a different way of interacting with machines or do you think that this is more about their age?
2: They do have a different way of interacting with machines, but it's not something that is unique to their generation. And so children around that age, between seven, eight, nine, they still will talk to their toys and they will see, they, they still believe in Father Christmas. So for them, robots are something special, but they're special in the same way as if, I don't know, a puppet in, in a play is something is something special. We notice it of puppets, they kind of see it as as something completely unique, uh, something that we adults don't anymore.
0: Yeah. You know, you mentioned hospitals and, and classrooms. Is that where you see this being useful to understand the role of using robots to guide children?
2: Yes. Yeah, absolutely. So you, whenever there's a situation where you need to be convincing, where you want children to understand same thing, something or to comply with something, and that sounds sinister, but it isn't. Yeah. It really means that, for example, uh, you, you want children to to lose weight and you'd like them to eat healthy. If a robot would tell you to stay off the candy but eat an apple instead, how much do they comply with those instructions? That's what we want to know. That's kind of the application.
0: What kind of robot did you use in the study? What does it look like and what is its demeanor?
2: It's a very small, friendly robot. So we didn't use anything too intimidating. It's 54 centimeters tall. It looks like a a, a white and and blue-grayish little humanoid. And it's made by a French-Japanese company, uh, SoftBank Robotics Europe. It goes by the name of Nao. And it's been around for about 10 years now. And it's, it's kind of a, a robot that we use quite a lot in human robot interaction research uh, because it's, it's a very common robot in our field. And so it's, it's kind of the E. coli of human robot interaction. <laughs> we just, in many, <laughs> many studies, we use that particular robot because it allows us to compare results between different studies.
0: So what are you going to do next to build on this, this result?
2: I think what what I'd be interested in is, um, would it be possible to actually exert peer pressure on adults, yeah? So can we actually use different robots, for example, a taller robot or a more authoritative robot or a robot that we present in a different way? And would it be possible to kind of, you know, sway opinions with adults and it's going to be hard to do, yeah. but I think it, it should be possible. The robots that we use now were, were small and friendly. And I think that's perhaps one of the reasons why it worked for children, but it didn't work for, uh, for, for adult population. But a different robot might, might make a difference.
0: All right. Thank you so much, Tony.
2: A pleasure. That was short and snappy. Thank you very
0: much. <laughs> <laughs> Tony Belplame is a professor at Ghent University and a professor of Cognitive Systems and Robotics at Plymouth University. Tony's paper is part of a package from Science Robotics this week on social robots. You can find a link to those papers at sciencemag.org slash podcast. And that concludes this edition of the Science Podcast. If you have any comments or suggestions for the show, write to us at sciencepodcast at AAAS.org. You can subscribe to the show on iTunes, Stitcher, many other places, or you can listen on the Science site, where you'll also find links to the research and news stories discussed in the episode. That's sciencemag.org slash podcast. The show was produced by Sarah Crespi and edited by Podigy. Jeffrey Cook composed the music. On behalf of Science Magazine and its publisher, AAAS, thanks for joining us. and an exclusive gift. Join today by visiting AAAS.org join. That's A-A-A-S dot slash join. This week's episode is brought to you in part by Science Careers. Looking for some career advice? Wondering how to get ahead or how to strike a better work-life balance? Visit our site to read how others are doing it. Use our individual development plan tool, access topic-specific article collections, or search for an exciting new job. Science Careers, produced by Science and AAAS, is a free website full of resources to help get the most out of your career. Visit sciencecareers.org today to get started.